Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast listening platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 15, The Holy Grail and Other MacGuffins, which originally aired in May of 2017. This episode is our first foray into the Arthurian and Grail legend through the lens of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So hop in the time machine with us and enjoy episode 15, The Holy Grail and Other MacGuffins. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. So, did you know that I'm actually really, really great at cracking a whip? Are you really? I am freaking fantastic at it. Did I already tell you why uh, a whip makes that cracking sound? Uh, you did, but you didn't tell the podcast listeners. You're right, I didn't. So, please, tell the podcast listeners why that is. So, you might think when you crack a whip that the whoop sound is... Uh, you know, the whip hitting something or the whip, you know, uh, colliding with air particles in some kind of way, that that's a sound that it's making against something, but it's not. It's actually um, the speed of a whip when it when it uncurls. So when you actually crack a whip, it uncurls in kind of this spiral fashion that starts at the bottom of the whip and goes to the very thin tip, and it comes out in this coil, and so the speed just compounds and compounds and gets faster and faster exponentially, and what you're hearing in the whoopsh is the whip actually breaking the sound barrier. So a whip makes thunder, in other words. Basically, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Do you want to know why I'm good at cracking a whip? And not just good, really good at cracking a whip? Why? I think I might know why. I had a whip when I was a kid. Was there uh, someone who inspired you to get a whip? Yeah, not, you know, parents usually don't just get their kids whips. No. It's kind of a really fucked up thing to do when you think about it. Unless that kid wants to be an adventure-seeking archaeologist. What? Unless that kid is freaking obsessed with Indiana Jones. Yeah. As I was obsessed with Indiana Jones. True story. 
there's a lot of reasons why I ended up studying history and loving ancient cultures and wanting to learn about them. One of them is gladiator. One of them, one of them is gladiator for sure. Uh, but the main reason I was even interested in was because Indiana Jones did that. I think Indiana Jones did that for a lot of people. I'm sure inspired, you know, an interest in history and mythology and archaeology and a lot of young people. Absolutely. It's instrumental in my intellectual awakening as someone who loves learning and reading and studying and going to uh, uh, anything having to do with uh, the ancient world. Yeah. Indiana Jones, good guy. Yeah. So we're going to actually be talking about I had to. Is that Indiana Jones? You didn't know I'm kidding. Okay. (laughs) The famous score by Mr. John Williams that we all know for a second there. Laurel actually had me that she didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we just watched Last Crusade last night. Oh, man. It was so great-ish. Great-ish. Ish. I'd like to zoom out for a second because we are going to be talking primarily about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade tonight. Yeah. Um, But we're talking about this and we are coming at it from a very particular angle. And that's uh, that we really wanted to talk about another stop on the hero's journey. Now, this is something that we've talked about before, especially when we hit rock bottom. Uh, You know, the, the hero's journey that's quintessential to the most... Uh, universal and most lasting stories in any culture. The hero will also often hit these um, these very specific and similar points in his journey. And and when you compare mythologies, you'll notice that all of the heroes hit those points. And the point on the hero's journey that we're exploring tonight is the boon. Now, when a, a hero sets out on a journey, they're often... Uh, competing or questing for some kind of treasure or prize, whether that is, you know, a a physical or material object or, um, or something a little more spiritual. Right. Right. Sometimes both. Like uh, Gilgamesh is searching for eternal life. Right. But we wanted to, we wanted to talk about boons. And when we started to talk about boons, we thought, what's the greatest boon in all mythology? The Holy Grail. Well, the Holy Grail. Yeah, the quest for the Holy Grail. Yeah, and it takes us through so many different kinds of stories and and so many centuries of those. It takes us from Arthurian legend to the Da Vinci Code and... Monty Python. Monty Python and Indiana Jones. Right. And and everything in between. Um, So we'll be looking at these stories through the eyes of the boon. And to be fair, that term's pretty new to me. Yeah. But the idea that there is a object by which the hero is questing for. And so we figured we'll talk a little bit about sort of the the history of the Holy Grail, some utterances of it, and how that came to be within Indiana Jones. Yeah. Right. That's pretty much the structure. I I didn't, I got it right. Yeah. Um, But I'd also also like to introduce a term here tonight. and many of you probably have heard this term before, and if you haven't, then you will understand it once I once I frame it. But the term is MacGuffin. Uh, so that's the dog that fights crime. Yeah, and takes a bite MacGuffin, out of crime. MacGuffin, the crime dog. MacGuffin, the crime dog. Now, what does that have to do totally with totally related? Grail? Yeah. The, oh, oh. Oh. Okay. So, how does MacGuffin, the crime dog, help us find the Holy Grail? So, MacGuffin is a term that was 
uh, popularized by Alfred Hitchcock, none other than Alfred Hitchcock. He was a he was a pretty famous storyteller, right? Very famous yeah, film yeah. director. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in in Hitchcock, a MacGuffin is the money in Psycho. You think that Psycho is going to be about the money that the main character steals, and then whoop! Surprise! Half hour in, the main character gets slaughtered in a shower. Um, spoiler alert. But a MacGuffin... We're bad at spoiler alerts. Everybody knows what happens in Psycho. Yes, but that is notwithstanding that we don't do a good job at spoiler alerting. I'm I'm usually worse than you at yeah. it, but yeah. But Rose, like, let me explain the whole plot and end of something. Oh, by the way, we there's a spoiler alert. A MacGuffin is a device that serves for no other reason than to move the plot along. And it's often compared to a red herring. So there might be an object or... A, uh, or some kind of element of the plot that seems like it's what the whole thing is about, but really it's just about getting everything going and then has nothing to do with what the story is really about. Um, and right I on. found a really great quote from Hitchcock explaining the term MacGuffin. This is from a lecture that he gave at Columbia in New York. And I'd like to read that for you. He says, quote, It might be a Scottish name taken from a story about two men on a train. One man says, what's that package up there in the baggage rack? And the other answers, oh, that's a MacGuffin. The first one asks, what's a MacGuffin? Well, the other man says, it's an apparatus for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands. The first man says, but there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. And the other one answers, well then, that's no MacGuffin. So you see that a MacGuffin is actually nothing at all. So it's a thing that exists within a story that has no real consequence or significance, but yet as an audience member, we're believed that it should have consequence or significance, and it gets us, as an audience member, maybe from point A to point B. Yes, and not just as an audience member, but as a character in that story, it gets us from point A to point B. So I'm Indiana Jones, and I hear about the Holy Grail, the MacGuffin might be the Holy Grail. It might not actually serve to do anything for this story, but it does get me to Venice and it does get me to Turkey. Right. And it does get me to reunite with my father, who I have a, a stressed and tenuous relationship to say the least. Exactly. Right. So the, the Holy Grail in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the MacGuffin of the movie. It right. ultimately doesn't really matter. Right. Um, it just serves to get all of the characters to where we need them so that the adventure can commence. Exactly. And what's really funny about this is when we started talking about doing a Holy Grail podcast, I was like, oh, I definitely want to compare the Holy Grail to famous MacGuffins. And then I went to the Wiki Wikipedia page about MacGuffins to find that quote. And the first thing I read was, uh, the uh, MacGuffin actually, the concept predates the term. Like an early MacGuffin is the Holy Grail. It's it's but it's the hipster MacGuffin. It was the MacGuffin before MacGuffin was was cool. Was MacGuffin. Yeah. So let's let's dive into a little bit of the Holy Grail. Now a uh, a word of just sort of caution or thinking when we discuss the the Grail and the Grail history and the Grail lore. One, the Holy Grail as it pertains to the Arthurian legend is just that. It's legendary. It's not history. Right. It's important to to be mindful that. It deals in the realm of story and has been commercialized 
and popularized and uh, doesn't necessarily intersect with with raw reality or fact. Right. And the reason why I give that sort of preamble warning to the Holy Grail is one, I asked my medieval histories prof- professor about the Holy Grail, and that's what she said. And I just wanted to uh, to show some respect for that. And two, it's important to put things in the context of where they belong. So we're going to be interceding in a lot of ways with real history in this episode, but nothing we're going to talk about is actually historical, which is kind of cool. That just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy, uh, especially looking at the number of times that the grail is uh, introduced in popular culture and in modern um, modern storytelling. Uh, it's easy to think that that actually is a thing that has been passed down in like actual legend, whereas Arthurian legend is often literary legend. And yeah, I think it's important to continue to separate those things. Right. Totally. Yeah. So what is the Holy Grail? Well, uh, traditionally it is uh, considered in most legends to be a, a cup or a serving dish. Yeah, a dish or even a plate. Or, or a plate. Um, or a stone. Stone is what I meant to say. Yeah. Where the, uh, the, the blood of Christ as he was on the crucifix was actually captured by his followers. And that blood itself being so divine in substance and origin granted upon this grail uh, some additional abilities of healing. And so it hence became the Holy Grail, which then gets lost into oblivion, by which now people will go out and quest to find this Holy Grail. Right. And this legend of catching the blood of Christ at the at the crucifixion, this comes from, uh, from the legend Joseph of Amarathea, which is put down by Chrétien de Troyes. Ooh, good accent. Yeah. Um, so this is also from from Arthur. Um, but there are other accounts of the grail being the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. And these were likely two different, you know, lines of uh of thinking or two different cups that were conflated at one point. Um All right. So there was yeah. another holy grail that wasn't the blood of Christ, but the last supper of Christ. Right. So I didn't know that. We, yeah, sometimes you'll hear that the Holy Grail is both of those cups. And then, but where it really comes from is that there were two different cups that kind of became symbolically combined. Um, and then there's also in the story of Percival, uh, who's one of the Knights of the Round Table, uh, when he's staying with the Fisher King, he does have a kind of a vision where some knights and maidens walk by carrying cups and and dishes, and he sees this really elaborate serving plate, and it's referred to as a grail. Um, that's really magical looking, and that becomes also conflated with the Holy Grail. So these are, you know, multiple different instances of this uh, this object that, throughout time and literature and legend, sort of become one. Right, and in the medieval world. There was a, a a few centuries period where there was uh, obsession might not be the right word, but uh, you know, sort of cultural, yeah, you know, I'll just say it, a cultural obsession around objects, objects that contained uh, divine properties, whether that was healing, whether that was age, like reversing age, uh, things that gained their power 
from a sort of transcendental, what I mean by transcendental, from another universe, a saint, an angel, God, or Jesus would be able to interact with these objects and give them magical powers and abilities. Right. If we look at relics in the church, we look at, you know, uh, any church might have the finger of St. Paul and that blesses you when you go and visit. But if you count up all the different fingers of St. Paul in all the churches in Europe, you've got, you know, he must have had 35 fingers. Right. And people believed this um, so passionately and so so um, fervently. You know, I can think of, there was a uh, an example, I think it was one of the early crusades where there was a Christian, you know, pan-Western European army lost in, in the deserts of Jerusalem, delirious and you know they're right on the uh, the shores, not the shores, but the uh, the outskirts of the city Antioch. And one you know delirious knight picks up a lance and says, "I have the lance of Christ." And it was a lance that apparently pierced Christ's skin while he was on the crusade. And the army went into a religious fervor, and they sacked and killed everyone in Antioch. Wow! That actually happened, and Yikes. it's sort of like the weaponization of the fetishization of ancient or Christ-like or divine relics. Right. So I think the grail is part and parcel. It's the sort of origin story, if you will, that there are these magical items out there and that once you have these, you are a little closer to the divine. You're a little closer to God and you might have these extraordinary powers or abilities because of it, because and this is something that Arthur did who in its mythic tradition, represents the coming about of Christianity in the pagan world. And he represents the transition from the Dark Ages to a medieval pan-European papal monarchy. Yeah. You know, and so, like, so I think the Grail serves this historical function um, in its sort of mythic and legendary tradition. Absolutely. Yeah, I I totally, I couldn't agree more. It makes me think of um, a wonderful book called The Mists of Avalon. Um, And I won't go too far down this rabbit hole because I know, Derek, you haven't, you're not as familiar, but it's a really beautiful recontextualizing of the Arthurian legends um, from the perspective of many of the women involved in that story. Oh, right on. Um, But I think better than any, um, any really good interpretation of the, of, of the Arthur story. I think it, illustrates that transition from paganism to um from pagan Celts to Christianity um that's symbolized by that legend um yeah and you see the you see the grail as a huge symbol in that story and Morgane who is our who's our girl she's our lead you know rock star lady witch of the mists of Avalon uh you know holding up the grail as this symbol of of the mother goddess and the symbol of, you know, her, um, her roots to the earth and her pagan kind of, uh, origins. And then the men and the, the knights holding it up as the symbol of Christ and how symbols can be changed and evolved throughout perspective. Oh, that's, do you know what's awesome about that? Can I get on a slightly historical tangent? Oh, please do. So in, in, uh, you know, Roman religion, or in Roman, when the, blah, blah, thoughts, words. So when the Roman emperors converted to Christianity, 
and the Roman uh, sort of imperial elite became Christian, and we started to see the rise in prominence of imperial patronage to the newly formed uh, Christian religion that would eventually become the Roman Catholic Church, they faced problems of trying to get the masses of people to convert. One of the strategies employed in the later half of the Roman Empire was to go to places where people would regularly sacrifice to pagan deities and switch out the statues and put in uh, saints. Right. That still, some of them still exist today where people would go and then instead of doing their sacrifices to, let's say, Pan or Heracles or uh, Zeus or, or Jupiter or whatnot, they would then go now to Peter or Paul or, you know, yeah. Constantine all these famous Roman or all these famous uh, now Catholic um, saints and switched sort of the, the is symbolically switched the, the worshiping of pagan deities to uh, Catholic saints in a very way that's reminiscent of hearing Morgan hold up the grail as the symbol of pagan um, and pagan maternity and pagan womanhood and pagan worship. While the knights are holding that same symbol and saying, Nope, yeah, it's about Christ. And it like, you know, it's a real good interplay between where, you know, the history and the art are mimicking each other. And that is why that, that example is why you will see such, um, such similarity in, uh, a lot of saints and sort of Celtic, um, you know, druidic spirits and gods and things. And it's why you'll see the qualities of Jupiter and Zeus in, uh, in the Christian God in, in many depictions. That's why right. you'll see so many of these symbols, like the Christmas tree, which is a symbol of the most like Christian, you know, the second most Christian religion in the calendar. You'll see. You mean holiday. It's, uh, yeah. yeah holiday. No worries. Second yeah. most Christian holiday in the calendar. Uh, but it's a, it's a historically pagan symbol. Uh, and you'll see so much of that reflected throughout because of the co-opting of those symbols, which made the transition easier between, you know, pagan religions and Christianity. It's like, how do we, you know, transition these people over to a new way of thinking without outright revolt? Okay. Let's just really subtly, you know, take over some of their traditions and just slightly tweak them. And then over time, let's repurpose it. Yeah. Cause it's really hard to go to someone and be like, you're now this religion. You know, that, right. that, that's not easy to do. And people are like, no, what, are you, what the fuck are you talking about? I've been part of this religion. And my family's been part of this religion for forever. You can't come in and tell me I'm now this religion. Right. So they didn't do that. They said, oh, okay, well, the emperor's part of this. So, you know, you can do this. Yeah. And, and it's as simple as being like, okay, so you guys are celebrating spring because, you know, it means Persephone's coming back from the underworld or it means, you know, the earth is regenerating. But, hey, you're also celebrating that Christ is risen and reborn. Makes it easier. Yeah. But, I mean, to, the truth is, in, in Rome, they did outlaw pagan religions. Right. So there was never an argument that Zeus, Athena, and all of these weren't real. It was that, though they are real, but they're demons. Yeah. And when you worship them, you're worshiping demons. And so you can't worship demons. That's illegal. You know, worshiping demons is wrong. You know, if there's a world where demons exist, I think we could agree. That's a pretty reasonable law. Right. But you can't actually stop them from doing it. So what do you do? Switch the statues. Yeah. It's like, hey, we know you're going to have a party this time of year anyway. So here's a better reason to have a party. It's now just called Easter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we rabbit hold. 
We Easter rabbit hold. Oh, I see what you did there, and I like it. Anyway, should we talk about Indiana Jones? Uh, yes. Let's get back to Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, the third installment of the Indiana Jones franchise. The final installment of the Indiana Jones franchise. Uh, Symbolically, yes, literally. Sadly, there was another Indiana Jones movie. Mm. Uh, We will call it the Indiana Jones movie that shall not be named. That shall not be named. (laughs) Um, But, uh, so yeah, this is the movie in which we go back to Indiana Jones as a character. I forget exactly when it was made, but it was in the 80s. Right. You know, it's done by Lucasfilm and Steven Spielberg and they return to Indiana Jones and they start off with Indiana Jones as a boy uh, seeking, uh, go like hiking in Utah. He finds this gold cross as a boy and he's fighting these grave diggers for it and blah, 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 blah. Flash forward. He needs to fight and find the Holy Grail. Yeah. And there's this really beautiful scene. Um, where uh, I forget the the name of the guy who commissions him. Uh, Evil Capitalist Man 1. Evil Capitalist Man 1 invites him over to his like fancy apartment. And he's like, look, we found this tablet and it's got this Latin on it. Can you read it? And as Indy is reading this tablet and he's sort of uncovering the mystery of what's going on, uh, Evil Capitalist Man number one is pouring champagne into glasses, and it's this perfect little piece of editing where, as it's being revealed that he's talking about the Holy Grail, you know, wine is being poured into a cup. I, I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah. So I want to say a little bit of something about archaeology, relics, uh, and where Indiana Jones as a narrative kind of sits historically. Yeah. And I'll start just asking everyone these questions. If you've ever been to a really cool museum that's had really cool things from all over the world, ask yourself this question, where did that stuff come from? And the reality is that came from a period of time called modernity where Western Europe conquered everywhere it could conquer and it literally took treasure and put it in their own museums. Right. Now, Indiana Jones as a character represents a time period in which there were wealthy um, you know, individuals who wanted to patronize archaeologists by not pay, but give them money for yeah. digs, but they usually wanted those collections for themselves. So they would pay archaeologists to dig things up and then they would keep them, the wealthy person who would fund it. Uh, there were universities that would go and fund it and usually with someone rich there. And then there were just, you know, uh, you know, official governments that would go and dig up treasure and take it and bring it back. Right. In this movie, Indiana Jones, it represents to me the, the sort of fetishization of objects like the Holy Grail. When I say that, it's the, the object itself is so valuable and so important and so lustful that the means to get the object are irrelevant as long as you get to it. Right. And Indiana Jones will kill people. You know, he's a, a Academic, presumably, but he's no problem murdering someone just to get to the object. Especially Nazis. Yeah, especially Nazis. Well, the Nazis, in reality, were searching for the Holy Grail. That actually happened. So Hitler did think there might be magical items buried somewhere and used his forces, uh, diverted military resources from battlefields to go do digs and treasure hunts because he thought if he got these objects, it might give him a tactical advantage, which is represented very well in this movie by all of the Nazi contingents that are there. Then Evil Capitalist Man 1 kind of represents 
sort of the um, that the capitalist impulse. Yeah, the private interest. I want it for me. I'll work with Nazis if that's what I have to work with so I can get the thing, but I'm going to get the thing because I'm rich and I want it. Yeah, and there's something interesting when you talk about the fetishization of objects. Uh, we can almost strip the Holy Grail in this story of its actual magical properties and still retain that argument. And what I mean by that is that Okay, so in this story, and in, in many versions of it as well, the grail contains uh, the possibility of eternal life. We often see the grail either being you know, eternal happiness, eternal youth, eternal life, or some other kind of magical property that elevates its owner. Um, but regardless of whether the cup that you find actually has magical properties in this story the possession of that object of such prestige, prestige of such legendary significance um, is enough to provide symbolic eternal life. So evil capitalist man number one, we should really find out his name. Uh, if he actually... Wait, it's not evil capitalist if he man attains, number one? Oh. If he attains the grail and drinks it and it doesn't give him eternal life... He's still he immortal. He still owns the holy grail and yeah. no one will ever forget him. Yeah. And his, uh, you know, his, his prestige goes up you know, plus a billion experience points. Right. Same for Hitler and the Nazis. You know, if he and got his hands on the Holy Grail, then he's the guy who got his hands on the Holy Grail and symbolically is ordained by God to do the horrible things that he's going to do. And Indiana Jones, on the same same token, and that same argument, and that same vein, if he were to have the Holy Grail, he would be the archaeologist who uncovered and found this object. Right. His name would be etched into the history books permanently. It's almost like he would be the most famous archaeologist of all time, which sadly I think he actually is. Yeah. And he wasn't in the real world. world. Yeah. <laughs> well done there. Well, well done. Yeah. But, you know, so lost in all of this, um, you know, and we'll take this as a symbol for what actually happened in uh, this movie, the Holy Grail's actually in Turkey. It is de facto, which means in Latin for fact, I think, but whatever. It is for a fact Turkish, yet there's not a single Turkey, Turk there there's an, in the sort of excavation of the grail. The few Turks that we see are being thrown into the booby traps and slaughtered by the Westerners. Right. They're literally the symbolism of you're just there for our pure utility. You have no claim to the actual grail. And there's an argument happening currently like, oh, it's great British Museum of London that you have all these great relics, right. uh, but you kind of came here to our country, said you ruled us, took those relics, and uh, we kind of want them back now. And there's an argument of who owns these items that right. are in so many of these museums. And I think Indiana Jones being sort of tone deaf to that Indiana Jones, not the character, but the franchise being tone deaf to that is being tone deaf to that entire um, argument to be made that maybe these relics don't belong where they belong. And even if it's been 150 years where something's been, let's say, in London, well, it was maybe a thousand years it was in Turkey or Egypt or right. Greece or. And there is, you know, there's an endless kind of philosophical debate about that kind of question. Like, okay, so it's the Rosetta Stone or it's some object of similar significance and it's in the British Museum. Uh, the number of people who will be exposed to that, the number of people who will be able to research that and see it and students who will be able to view it is much, much higher than the number of people who will be able to view it, view it in its country of origin. 
So that's part of that argument too. That's the exact argument my ancient history professor made. Yeah. That's the exact argument. But the ethical argument on the other side is, well, you know, you're depriving the country of its origin of this, you know, claim to uh, to its uh, its significance and the opportunity to bring people into our culture and view other pieces of our culture. Uh, so there's there's huge ethical implications of it. Um, and I don't know if you and I are like are fully equipped to. Oh, I don't know the answer to, to that debate. That debate, I, but I, I don't because I love walking down because we're in Philadelphia and I love going to the University of Penn's Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology right. and seeing amazing shit from all over the world and not thinking about how they yeah, got it or where they like got the it. The largest sphinx in North America, right? Because in Philadelphia, if you're in a museum and you read a little blob. Oh, so and so went and funded the the dig and came and got this, and now then when they died, it was bequeathed to us. Yeah, you know, that thing was fucking stolen, right? Right. Like, but the larger point that I'm making about this too, and about Indiana Jones, is it's like justice, which we talked about a few weeks ago. It's about the narrative that you craft around it, and that's why I think uh, you know it's an important thing for us to explore here on the Midnight Myth is. What is the narrative of imperialism? What is the narrative of modernity and the narrative of objects? Right. And just because I can doesn't mean I should. And if I have the power to take this this awesome object and give it to my scholars and have them look at it and understand it and study it, it can do things like empower myself, like me, to be a better, more equipped, more global citizen and from that, I've directly benefited from this system. But intuitively, it feels so morally wrong. Right. So it's an interesting perspective, having studied history for many years, inspired by Indiana Jones, and then going back and re-watching Indiana Jones, now equipped with this knowledge. You know, there's a scene in the movie that I think encapsulates perfectly the arrogance of colonialism and imperialism. So they're in Venice, and Indiana Jones has just, he's found out that his father has disappeared. His quest for the, the grail kind of went stale, then someone kidnapped him. And he's meeting this other doctor who's been uh, sort of the number two, and Indiana Jones is now going to take, take over this. So he goes into this church, and through this church, he realizes that there has to be a hidden catacomb underneath the floor. And the archaeologist the person that's preserving history, standing in literally a temple of appropriated history. Right. What does he do to get to the tomb? Yep. He shatters the floor. And just me as like a modern uh, history lover, seeing him destroy this floor, and he's destroying the floor not to get to the grail, but to get to his father. His individual journey, his selfishness, in other words, oversees and overrides the perseverance of an ancient uh, temple, and he just desecrates it by destroying it, and without without hesitation, without limitation, without without thought of the consequences, and it's shot in a frame of humor, right? Because as he's smashing the oh, floor, yeah, the librarian. it has the librarian stamping a book, and the librarian thinking, "Oh my goodness, my stamping this book is causing this sound," which is 
childish and stupid and has like departs us so far from reality. But as a as a filmmaker, you're like, God, or as a film watcher, you're like, this is delightful. Yeah. But the historian in me is just like, oh my God, this is killing me. And it's the great contradiction of Indiana Jones, too. Uh, I think there's a lot of attention paid to that character in terms of, okay, yeah, so he's, let's choose this really um, ostensibly dry occupation for him, a professor of archaeology, and have him turn out to be this kind of uh, swashbuckling hero. Uh, and I think a part of that is putting his sort of American individualism above his profession. And so that's what we usually see in those scenes, that he's reckless, that he is, uh, you know, has kind of no care for the things around him because he is more motivated by some of these human concerns. And I'm thinking no archaeologist ever would just destroy the floor of a building that's a thousand years old. Right. You know, like, it's just impossible for them to do so. Also, like, it's Venice. Like, those floors are probably already rotting to toilet waste anyway. So wow, I, I'm kind of okay with it. Okay. Venice is sinking. Okay. I, I, I was, can't, it was going to get destroyed. I can't speak to that because I have no knowledge of it. Uh, <laughs> should we talk about the grail a little bit in this? Yeah, I think we should talk about how I, the, the significance of the grail in this story. So... To me, it's the MacGuffin. The journey that Indiana Jones as a hero is going through is the journey of reconnecting with his long-lost father. Right. And overcoming sort of the bears and ill will of their, their broken childhood. Yeah. So much so that humorously at the end, we find that Indiana Jones, who's called Junior the whole time, is actually named Henry, but he hated his dad so much, he took on the name of the dog, Indiana. You know, and I thought that that's like a, a great place for that movie to end to say that now that we know this about Indiana Jones, we know that he and his father have finally reunited and reconciled. It's kind of an interesting biblical metaphor in itself, too, the connection of the father to the son um, and that the father and the son have the same name and shared the same woman and are one. Um, and maybe Marcus is the Holy Spirit in that metaphor. I don't know where I'm going with this. That's but, a great metaphor. I love it. Final thing I that love we it. Hear, the final thing that we hear from Henry Jones Sr. on the grill is, um, and I'll call back to you know the beginning of the film and the flashback where we get Indy's origin story, really. Uh, we sort of see an over-the-shoulder shot of Henry Jones Sr., and he's you know kind of tracing an illumination page from some uh, important medieval Christian uh, work of... Uh, literature and as he's tracing this he says may he who illuminated this illuminate me and the last word we get from him on the grail after they've both kind of let it go after he's been the one and you you said this yesterday as we were watching the film you said that Henry Jones who arguably is the person in the film that the grail meant the most to symbolically is the one who says let it go in the end and he walks out of that temple and says, well, what I got out of this was illumination. Yeah. And so to, to put, for those that may, maybe that haven't seen it, at the very end of the movie, just to give you the, the plot points uh, to decompact that, the, the grail exists. The Nazi, you know, evil capitalist dude, number one, picks the wrong grail and dies for it because he's an asshole. And, uh, the doctor, the other doctor, the female doctor, I'm forgetting her name. Dr. Schneider. Dr. Schneider is carrying the grail, but you 
you can have the grail, you can have immortality, but you can't cross the seal. You can't take it with you. If you cross the seal, which she does, the whole temple starts to fall apart and she starts to fall. Indiana Jones grabs her through the middle of the schism and the grail is just in her reach, like her finger can touch it, but she can't hold onto Indiana Jones and the grail and she falls. Then Indiana Jones starts to fall and then in comes his father, Henry Jones, to grab him. And Henry Jones looks at him and just says, let it go. Which I think to me is also symbolic that it's not about the grail. Right. It's about their love, the father and the son's love. And in the end, that meant more than immortality. Yeah. And that the grail itself was the thing that could bring them together. This shared search, uh, this shared search for truth across history, this shared search for truth across literature could actually bring them closer together to understand each other better. Um, and it's brilliant. It's such a good story. And it's, it's also supremely cliched, you know? Uh, and I, I think this is why I wanted to talk about MacGuffins is that this is all over storytelling in the sense of like, we have our hero embark on this quest for this prize or for this material wealth and find something deeper and truer and more spiritual in himself along the way. And as cliched as that is, there's a reason it exists. You know? Um, oh, totally. I mean, the first written down story was the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right. And we don't have time to rehash that, but his main quest was he was he was a king in uh, the ancient Mesopotamian city of Ur, um, which became one of the, the most famous and powerful cities uh, pre-Babylon. And uh, Gilgamesh, his main quest is that he's looking for everlasting life in this quest, he loses his best friend, a guy named Enkidu. Mm. He gets to a point where he can get immortal and everlasting life, but he loses it. And then he comes back to Ur. And what does he finally learn? That he needs to be just a good king. Just a good king. It's and he a, becomes it's a good an king. amazing story. Yeah, it's one of the greatest stories of all time. And hopefully you're familiar with it. But I think you hit the nail on the head of the universality of the quest for the thing really not being about the thing at all. Right. And in this case, Indiana Jones has that Gilgameshian spirit where it's about them questing the last crusade is what it's called. The final battle for the Holy Grail. And they get to the Holy Grail and they let it go. Yeah. It's another example that I thought of in, um, in pop culture uh, was to bring things back to Harry Potter again and you know, visit another historically and uh, mythologically significant object, the Philosopher's Stone, um, or the Sorcerer's Stone, as it's known in some versions of that text, uh, and how Harry's entire quest through that story is to uncover the mystery of the Sorcerer's Stone and to find the Sorcerer's Stone. And when he does, he has this opportunity to have a, a, you know immortality and have this partnership with the Dark Lord and you know rule the world. And as disingenuous as that might be, Harry really does have a chance to, to have real power at that moment. And he chooses not to. He chooses to do the right thing. And by returning it to Dumbledore, you know, the, this mythologically significant object is destroyed. And the Philosopher's Stone in that story really is just the thing that gets Harry from point A to point B 
so that he can make the choice that he has to make and realize that he is going to be this brave fighter for the rest of this saga. And we see objects take on significance throughout that um, narrative from Horcruxes to Deathly Hallows. When he has the chance I was just to, gonna to say master the hallows. The, hallows. the death, it, it, yeah. He, he gets the elder wand and he snaps it at he the end and it throws it. Snaps it at the end of the it. movie. Yeah, yeah. And just, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, um, he's just like, no, I don't want this. And I think it's a really yeah. beautifully realized version of that ancient and immortal cliche. Yeah, which is, I think, such a crucial part of the midnight myth is the the quest for the thing really not being about the thing. We should rename our podcast the ancient and immortal cliche. Uh, we'll leave that to our listeners. If you like that, tweet it back to us. If you want us to stay at Midnight Myth, tweet that back to us. Oh my God. And, uh, if you guys, so be it, want to change the name of the podcast. You're an ancient and immortal cliche. Too bad because it's my podcast that I'm not changing the name. Nice. Should we go to the game? Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, one, maybe. One final thought. Do it. Totally off topic. Topic. A midnight myth style boomerang. Do it. If you're new to the show, a midnight myth boomerang is when I fucked up and I said, "Ooh, I've got a." I want to say I've got a curveball, but I said I've got a boomerang. Yeah. And now it's become but our it thing. Works. So midnight myth boomerang. Does this movie hold up? The Last Crusade. Oh gosh, we're going to talk about this. So to put it in into just where I'm at, as I haven't seen the movie in decades. Yeah, it was like ten years before last time I'd seen it. I saw it in the theater. I think I went with my father on Father's Day. I don't know. I could be making that memory up. But anyway. That'd be a very Father's Day movie to see. Yeah. Watching the movie again now as an adult with context, um, I'm just curious if you thought it held up uh, to the memory. It does not. Um, And I'm not saying it's a terrible movie. And it it is part of a franchise that I love pretty dearly. So I have... You know, we talked about this. It hit some nostalgia buttons for me. I put on my nostalgia goggles um, for a very rose-tinted Indiana Jones weekend. Um, But yeah, it's it's got a it's got a hell of a lot of problems. And I I'm glad we were able to take the the story at face value and and evaluate its its significance in the the longer you know lore. But yeah, it's it's problematic. Yeah, there's so many moments in that movie that are amazing that I love and I romanticize and I have, like you said, those rose-tinted nostalgic goggles and I totally enjoyed every second of re-watching it. That being said, it's not a good movie. No, and I think it suffers primarily from the fact that, you know, they're on this quest for a an overtly religious object and there is not really a, uh, there's not really a come to Jesus in the film, if you will, um, that... Indy is supposed to sort of embrace this uh, these three challenges about the breath of God and the word of God and the path of God, and he's supposed to take this leap of faith, but it's really not a leap of faith. No, because he's not and really, doesn't strike you as a religious he character. He doesn't start as a religious skeptic and then have a, a moment where he becomes a, a religious character, but then in the end, the grail actually has religious significance, and I thought those two things were totally mutually exclusive, and so it turns into a different movie. Sure. My, my, for me. Yeah. My whole thing is just so many small little inconsistencies. Um, so many small little just like nitpicks and faults that I'm like, an archaeologist wouldn't do that. An archaeologist wouldn't do this. It's true. Yeah. You know, like, so why all of a sudden 
you know, is there a, a, a stop in the road where it says, if you go right, you're in Venice. If you go left, you're in Berlin. That oh. sign doesn't exist anywhere. It's true. I think that's the joke, though, because there's a lot of there's a lot of like semi slapstick in Indiana Jones. That's like it's like not really realistic comedy. Oh yeah, let me just like throw a Nazi thing. Yeah, yeah. Let me just throw a Nazi out of a air balloon and be like, oh, oh no ticket, no ticket in yeah, English. That's another example of it. And everyone's just like, oh, let me get the ticket. It's like. What am I watching? And all the puns, yeah. Oh my god! Like, what am I watching? Like, rewatching it. It's mean, a like, little vaudeville, yeah. Like, oh, like this is just a like. It's absurd in moments. Right, it has right, right, so right. so many great scenes. It's a fantastic story. It's incredibly well acted and directed, but it also was sort of I, I would say a oh, slave yeah, of the, its time. The Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword. Yeah, talk about another MacGuffin. MacGuffin. At the very beginning, here are these Moroccans in Venice willing to kill Indiana Jones to stop him from getting the 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 path to the Holy Grail. Yeah, that he ends up killing all of them except one who says, "Oh, we don't. You don't want the Grail. You just want your father. Oh, here's the path to the Holy Grail. Then that I've sworn <laughs> by God to not give to anyone. But since you just want your father, then I wish you luck." And by the way, at the very end of the movie, they need them to kill some Nazis, so they just show up in Turkey. So, I mean, I would just show up to kill some Nazis, but... Not to mention, like, the blatant Orientalism with oh, the true. Turkish sultan who they bribe for the with right the, to get the grail with, with, the a, Rolls with Royce. a car. They're like, they're like, oh, we'll give you this gold treasure. And he's just like, really, all I want is this car. Rolls Royce. Oh, just so many parts it's, of that movie. Yeah, it's it's pretty busted. That I just slapped my head watching again and being like, "Oh man, this does not hold up." Yeah, but I'm I agree. sorry for those Indiana Jones fans that I'm crushing you right now. I really because I'm one of them. I had a whip and a hat <laughs> so that I could be like Indiana Jones, and I cracked the fuck out of that whip. Anyway. Anyway, right before we go to the game, I just want to rattle off a couple of other MacGuffins. Um, Do it. Just so you can look these up. So we said, we said Holy Grail. Uh, the Holy Grail is also a MacGuffin in the Da Vinci Code. It's also a MacGuffin in Monty Python and the Holy, the Holy Grail. Grail. Yeah. Because they never even find it. Right. Um, we also have uh, the Golden Fleece in Jason and the Golden Fleece. That's a MacGuffin. We have the Philosopher's Stone. We have the Deathly Hallows. We have the Maltese Falcon. We have the money in Psycho. What else we got? Uh, more recent, if you've seen Rogue One, when the main character gets a kyber crystal, which they make lightsabers out of. Totally a MacGuffin. But I think that's a product of reshoots. I think it was more significant in an older uh, cut. Uh, either way. It, but it does serve as a MacGuffin. Yeah, it means absolutely nothing. And it's they make such a big deal out of it. You're like, oh, well, she's probably going to use that to make a lightsaber, right? Right. Oh, no, that she, no. Oh, she didn't. She didn't do that. Um, I'm blanking on others. That's cool. I just yeah. wanted to rattle a couple off. But there's there's a lot of them out there. Yeah. Send us your favorite MacGuffins. Yeah. Send us to them vis-a-vis the Twitters. All right. Let's play a game. All right. Do your thing, Laurel. Cool. So every week on the Midnight Myth podcast, we like to play a little game uh, to have some fun with the characters and situations we've been getting all down and dirty with. Uh, and we would love for you to play along at home. So please tweet us your responses at... The Midnight Myth on Twitter, or uh, just search The Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook, or drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. So, here's this week's game. You have all of mythology to go with here. So, you can pick 
one mythological mystical object to become part of your private collection? What is it and why? Your turn. So any mythological yeah. thing, I'm gonna, item. I'm going to cry any, if we choose the same one. Any genre. No, no limitations. No I limitation. would love for people to go crazy with this. All right. So I thought about this a little bit and I realized the answer was in front of me the entire time. Oh, no. I'm getting the Holy Grail. Oh, you're getting the Holy Grail? Oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. It was always there. And you want to know why the Holy Grail? Why? I'm going to take the Holy Grail and I'm going to get everlasting life. Duh. But the Holy Grail, at least in the Indiana Jones way, there's a point where uh, Sean Connery, Henry Jones, um, the character Henry Jones, he's shot. Indiana Jones pours the Holy Grail water over it and it heals it. Yeah. I'm opening up a Holy Grail hospital and I'm going to become the richest motherfucker in the world. Oh, my God. Oh, you want your AIDS cured? Come here. Oh, there's an emergency? Come here. And I'm charging. I'm going to be a total oh capitalist douchebag. That's terrible and amazing. It's kind and, of amazing. And I'm going to have my holy... And it's going to call be called Holy Grail Miracle Healing Hospital by Derek Jones. <laughs> and I'm going to heal the fuck out of people for a price. And I'm going to become so unbelievably rich. And I'm going to live forever... So I won't let anyone else get the live forever part because I'm going to put the seal even in me. the hospital. Well, you know, you're going to live in the hospital with me. Okay. Yeah. You're going to live there with me. But the patients, I just cure them and they leave. Wow. They can't take it with them. I am really surprised by how like. Ruthless. Ruthless and like ethically ambiguous you got there. Oh, yeah. But I mean, that just seemed like such an amazing business model. Sure. Holy Grail <laughs> Hospital. It sounds like the Catholic Church in the, you know, late but, Middle Ages. But one that works. <laughs> one that works to heal people. The Catholic yeah. Church worked. I mean, it, you know, how do you even rate? How did the Catholic Church, church work? <laughs> yeah, well, it worked. On a know? scale of zero to five, how satisfied are you with the Catholic Church in the late Middle Ages? Uh, I'm going to give from, it like... From not satisfied at all to very satisfied. I'm going to give it a with, three. With three at... At not sure. I'm I'm very passively satisfied, so I'll give him a three. All right, that's nice. Good for you. Yeah. All right, your turn. Okay, I'm choosing. We're also going Arthur. I'm choosing Excalibur. That's a all right. So tell me why. Okay, I have a couple of reasons why. My primary my primary reason why is really dumb, but um, Excalibur is the um, famous legendary sword of Arthur. Um, it's sometimes mixed up with the sword that he got thrown. Um, so I think it is the sword from the Lady in the Lake in some versions, but sometimes that's another sword. And then there's also the sword in the stone, which is sometimes another sword. But Excalibur is like the big one that um, is the symbol of Arthur's birthright and his um, sovereignty over England and the land. You will be the land and the land will be you. Um, Excellent Merlin impersonation from, from the, the movie Excalibur. The, 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 the Excalibur movie from the 80s. Yeah. Um, but it also has some magical powers. And the scabbard itself is said to, uh, you know, protect him against wounds that can heal. Um, and it's, you know, kind of an undefeated sword in battle. Uh, so I'm choosing this sword uh, not only for the 
combat skills that it gets me and the healing powers. Are you worried about getting into a lot of sword fights going forward? You know. That was my one reason why I couldn't pick Excalibur because, you know, a lot of opportunities for sword fights. But healing powers is pretty good. Healing powers is good. I've been hit by a couple of cars. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Um, For those of you driving, don't hit my girlfriend with a car. Please don't hit me with a car. I'm not even saying please, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, but the sovereignty over England part is pretty cool. So essentially if I got hold of Excalibur, I would be the queen of England. And here's the reason I want to be the queen of England. Have you seen those corgis? Mic drop. You just won. You won yeah. this game. Queens we, of England have the cutest dogs. We often don't declare a winner of the game. You just won the game. <laughs> And Winner. I don't have to be a capitalist stooge to do it. Oh, no, you're just an imperialist stooge. I'm just a, a figurehead. I'm not even actually a, a a governmental, you know, ruler in this version. Oh, no, the queen of England Because there's a prime minister. No, 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 she's just the queen. Yeah. Yeah, I've just got a whole family of inbred morons. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't you're, mean to say You're that. not at all an imperialist stooge when you're the queen. That's not a, that's not a thing not. at all. No. Yeah, no, that's def- definitely, you're, you're abstained from the imperialism, only that, you know, you're just the, the entire symbol of it, but that's okay. And I'm just on, you know, all of the money. All of the money. Even in Australia and Canada. Yeah, that's actually pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, you won the game. Thanks. Yeah, you did a much better answer than mine. Oh, for I really liked your reason. answer. I thought it was very creative. All right. Well, what would you guys choose yeah, and why? I'd love to hear. Are you going to choose the Golden Fleece? Are you going to choose the Golden Bow? The Ring of Power? The Ring of Power? Are you going to choose the Elder One's Ring? The Elder One? Whatever whatever it is. Uh, Luke's, Luke Skywalker's Sky Lightsaber? Sorry. Yeah. I, I kind of broke my brain there just trying to say yeah, that. There's, there's so, so much. There's just a wealth of things to choose from. But uh, we'd love to hear from you. Just a few reminders. Uh, we haven't been keeping up with the blog as regularly as we'd like. Uh, just because I'm transitioning into a new job, uh, which is demanding a lot of my time. Uh, Laurel, if you didn't know this already, is the busiest human being on the planet. I'm pretty busy. With her, like, anywhere between two to ten jobs that she juggles. But the blog is active. It's www.midnightmyth.blog. Midnightmyth.com slash blog. I, I just don't do that well. And uh, if you like us, give us a review on iTunes. Yeah, please rate us, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell a stranger, tell your enemies. And uh, until next time, be kind. Illumination. Illumination.